This podcast is brought to you by the founders of Chabra's Chai, an authentic and completely sugar-free chai tea company. This series, our theme will be inspiration. You don't have to save the world to be inspiring. And our friends are perfect examples of that, inspiring us every single day by being unapologetically themselves. So welcome to our very, very, very first No Added Sugar podcast episode, Ooh. starring your fave girls, Ruby, Casey, hey. and Pratima, aka Pratima. Okay, so just to introduce our podcast, um, we wanted to provide a platform to unique, educational and very topical stories. So this series, we're going to explore the idea of inspiration. And the reason for this is because when we launched our company, Chabra's Chai, we began encountering interesting people and having all kinds of different discussions about life, business, um, navigating your career. And I think that is when we realised that it's not just notable celebrities or people on Times magazine's like most influential list that inspire us. Yeah. It's our friends, family, co-workers that have such a positive influence. And I do think that sometimes the best places to look for inspiration aren't in magazines, but the people you come across every, every day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's totally just like the people around us that force us to try new experiences and who really motivate us because like the thing about being famous and celebrities is that they just seem so distant from our normal lives whereas when you're with your friends and colleagues you see them going out and achieving things and that's what really changes your perspective on things yeah it's like they're relatable yeah yeah and our guests on the series have shown us that not all inspiration looks the same Mm. and hopefully these guys inspire you too yeah so just a little bit about us. We also own a chai business together, Chabra's Chai. 10% off right now, chabraschai.com. <laughs> With two H's. Yes. We launched in March 2018, so just over a year ago now. Um, yeah. Although, to be honest, I think we really started the groundwork way before then. Yeah, because you really do forget how much planning goes into a business. Like You're just so excited by your initial idea. You just want to hit the ground running. But there's so many things that you need to prepare. Yeah, mm. it's easy to get swept away. Yeah. Exactly. And I've learned so much about market research and setting up your website, accounting. And with a food business as well, you have to do further research yeah. into health and safety compliance and making sure you cover yourself legally yeah especially with food it's like if it says nut free it has to be nut free mm, yeah and if it's a dairy free environment it has to you know be that yeah allergy checks need to be on point <laughs> <laughs> and also i think i've learned from like doing all these trade shows it's taught us to have a really thick skin because sometimes sure. like you know when people are trying your product and they don't like it and they're just making that odd face and you you can see them and it's important that you're not disheartened by this because there are always going to be people who don't like what you're selling and you can't please everyone but I think we were definitely a little bit bitter to begin with. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, just take it on the chin now. You can't please everyone. Yeah. But I guess that's like key to business as well knowing your target audience knowing your target customer and what they look like and and how to segment them and yeah yeah exactly even though it's been like a year since we've launched we're still like looking to learn new things scale up Mm, the business and just take any advice that we can get from anyone so we've discussed our business together but we should share how we actually know each other yes Mm. so me and case have known each other since 1999 (laughs) um do you remember your first impressions of case um 
Well, yeah, I do actually remember this one time where me and Kesa and another friend of ours were playing hairdressers in nursery, and our other friend, like, literally just chopped off one of Casey's plaits, and she, oh. <laughs> she just sat there, she was a face. So, yeah, I thought this is the cool kid. Actually, <laughs> I cut off my own plaits. What? <laughs> I'm sure I've told her like many years later. <laughs> She's a real friend. Well, we're still friends, so I knew from then she was a real one. And um, uh, what are your first impressions of Rube? Uh, well, firstly, Pratt asked you what your first impressions of me, and you said a memory. Like, <laughs> she was really funny, such a pretty girl. She was really funny. <laughs> that was so just, <laughs> that's all you had to say. Anyway, um, Ruby was definitely the popular girl. I loved Ruby because she could colour in the lines. Um, that's all you really had going for you. Do I say some jealousy? It was really unfair because Ruby got to colour in everything. Um, and then me and Pratt met in secondary school. And I remember we weren't in the same friendship group. And then one day we asked Pratt if she wanted to join the group. And yeah, Pratt just joined straight hey, away in the rest of the group immediately. I did take some time. Wasn't that easy? Oh, I don't remember that part. <laughs> and then Ruby introduced me to Pratt um, and some of your other school friends when we were like 14, 15. And then um, we went to uni together and, and that just brought us all much closer together. Yeah. And we've been inspiring each other ever since. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on swiftly. Anyway, so... <laughs> I just wanted to dive straight into the topic of inspiration um, and the idea of inspiring others. I was at the pub the other day with work and we were having a discussion with one of my colleagues who bought a Royal Paris painting before he was convicted of paedophilia um, and he was saying that it was really hard to sell the painting now which I found quite surprising because I thought can't just sell it on the dark web but, (laughs) Um, but it did lead to an interesting discussion on how we approach art and artists and celebrities and if Mm. we should stop consuming their art based on their personality or moral transgressions Mm. um, and how do we act towards their art after we like learn of their behavior for example if they've like had an affair or been cheating or something (laughs) that's a really heavy topic for the (laughs) that is interesting though because it's like happening quite a lot these days and it does make you question whether you should like completely stop interacting with their work and and like just where do you draw the line Mm. it's difficult because like when rolf or any artist are like doing their work it must be in their psyche somehow and like manifest somehow into their work yeah but then i guess as the argument the best way to sort of engage with their art is treat it as separate from them and separate from their history and their person Mm. so yeah i think the dilemma is how do i reconcile my love for the art with my moral disgust i just i don't know about that because like even if i separated it if i enjoyed or bought the art i feel like it would be a way of supporting the artist Mm. and like funding them even though i've known that they've done such awful things yeah but what if like the artist was isn't alive like does their existence make a difference to the separation of the art then? Because mm. if they're dead, we aren't really funding them. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah but yeah. if you, like, continue to consume their art, like, even after they've died, like, you watch the movie or you visit the exhibition, you give them more importance, you continue to make them more relevant. So, mm. like, the best way to punish them is to just stop watching their movies, stop giving them relevance, 
and let their legacy die with them. Mm, I guess. But I guess um, like there's some acts that have are more moral, morally disgusting. Yeah, like, like rape. Yeah, and they yeah. more have more like outrage in the media. Um, Especially with R. Kelly. Exactly. Like yeah. his lyrics are very explicitly linking to the crimes and his abuse. Like, <laughs> I don't see nothing wrong with a little bump and grind. Like, I do. I do actually, Robert. I see a lot wrong with it. Yeah, I just, I don't think in that case the art can be separated from the artist. And I don't think his song should be played because that would be directly funding him as well. Mm, exactly. um, people buying his music. Right, because he's still alive, doing a madness. Like, not even to be nasty, but I'm really enjoying his demise. <laughs> Seeing him experiencing severe financial woes is giving me great joy. He's bankrupt. Yeah. But yeah, what about like Michael Jackson? Because his case is a bit more ambiguous. Like, if the allegations are true... Um, will you continue to listen to his music? Because he is like one of the biggest artists in the world. Um, mm. And also now he's gone, he won't get the money. So is it okay to continue to listen to his music? Yeah, mm. I guess it is much harder like to give a straight answer when they're dead. It's easy just to be quite ignorant to, which is extremely problematic. Yeah. Um, but do you guys think that, I don't know, like great artists have to do something awful or like dark in order to make their work spectacular because it seems to be the case with like um like chris brown to an extent or like sylvia plath um picasso woody allen and now like mj well, this like, is never ending yeah. exactly <laughs> like what talents like do you have to possess to be a great artist it's like ooh, talent brains tenacity and now like trauma like yeah. devastation. I, mean, <laughs> I really don't think doing something monstrous is necessary for good art. Mm. Like loads of people experience trauma and they aren't all suddenly fabulous Committing artists. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of great artists that haven't done monstrous things. Exactly. Also, what about separating politics from music? Like separating controversial political views from a specific artist. Like um, Kanye West supporting Trump, or even the racism of Liam Neeson. Mm, true. And equally, if someone has done something good, are you more likely to listen to their music? Like, like with Stormzy and how he's investing in young people, sending Bane kids to college. Like, are you more likely to appreciate his art, knowing that he's done these good things? I think for me, like when you like an artist already, and then you hear their music, and you know they've done good things, it's like I want to support them even more. Like I'm going to keep listening to their music. Like it encourages me, but. I don't know about, like... Well, for Liam Neeson, you actually are cancelled. But um, with Kanye West, I don't know, because some of his old songs are bangers. Mm. As I said, when they're dead, it's tough. But when they're alive, we are in a position as consumers to make our own decision on whether we want to support them. Like, it was very easy... Um, like it's a very easy decision for me to not support someone who would come out with such racist remarks as, as Liam Neeson did. Yeah. Like, I don't care to rationalise what he said or, like, make sense of it. Like, I don't know the man. I don't know his moral compass. Um, and then it makes it easier for me to be like, yeah, I'm not interested in supporting your art. Um, but just to your point, maybe it is as simple as if you do good things, we'll support you more. And if you do bad things, we'll support you less. But then it's like, where do you draw the line? What What's good? What's bad? Mm. Yeah, it's hard because celebrities and artists have different identities and, like, it's whether you separate their monstrous or immoral side away from the side that produces their great work that we know and love. Yeah, it's mm. hard, though. But I do think, like, as a society, we have a, this real issue with 
we expect like perfect morality and ethical behavior from like these artists and celebrities and then we put them on like pedestals so when they and then they become like role models yeah like role models and like inspiration and then the moment this starts to crumble we question their art and like we have discussions like this and it's like (laughs) cancelling season and it's like um like yeah it's just ridiculous like i've really been trying recently to just like distance myself from um like the people behind the films or people behind the music or whatever like I, like, I'll be like, I enjoy that film, I enjoy that song, I don't care for the person singing or acting, and, and that's okay. Um, I mean, it's very much easier said than done. But Yeah, because yeah, like, once you like someone, it's like, I'm going to stalk them, I'm going to go to their Instagram. Yeah. You just want to like listen to more of their music, watch more of their films, Like you want to see them again and again. Yeah, then you're on YouTube, watching yeah, their watching videos, their <laughs> and you think like you know them, and then, yeah, and then the moment they do something questionable, it's like, how could they betray me like this? How did I not catch on? <laughs> yeah. It's like, we don't know them! <laughs> it's like with the MJ thing as well, like, when it came out, people were saying, oh, how did we not know that? Like, yeah. he was lying in bed with little kids, like, and now suddenly everyone's like, we should have seen it coming. It's like, how? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, we were with them. MJ, we don't know MJ. It's <laughs> <laughs> not my responsibility to pick it out. Yeah. Yeah, but then again, like, is that just us? being totally British, over-analysing and overthinking everything. Should we separate art from the artist? Like, is anyone else in the world actually thinking mm. about this as much as us? <laughs> yeah, Britain? true, because Americans are just like, cancelled, he's cancelled, Twitter, <laughs> like, take it to Twitter. Like. <laughs> yeah, it is a British thing. I saw a tweet the other day, and it was like, being British is asking the taxi driver if they've been busy and then sitting in an awkward silence for the entire journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say the one where it's like, being British is saying, like, oh, anywhere here's fine to the taxi driver, even though they pulled up, like, right outside your house. <laughs> I was thinking, why do I do that? How relevant. <laughs> but seriously, what does it mean to be British? Is it being born here? Is it having a passport? Is it loving a country? Is it loving a roast? <laughs> well, funnily enough, one of my family members is actually taking the British citizenship test. Ooh. And I know, honestly, the they've been revising so hard. The questions that they ask you for this test are absolutely ridiculous. Like, if that's what it takes to be British, I'm not British. <laughs> There's no way. I've actually got some of the questions here, right? So see if you guys can answer this, right? John Petz was a Welshman famous in which two of these areas of art? Stained glass, watercolours, engraving, painting of horses. I don't know who John Petz Literally, is. Literally, <laughs> who? What? I'm not an artsy <laughs> person. Okay, wait, one more. No, I'll give, two, I'll give you two more. Okay. An attempt by which group to put James II's son on the throne instead of George I was quickly defeated? James and George who? Who? The <laughs> Literally, like, how is this relevant to our society now? Please Whoa. tell me. Okay, I love these questions. Right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a nice one. So, who wrote the game? F- who wrote Game of Thrones? <laughs> I don't know. Modern. Who wrote Game of Thrones? Sorry, what I meant to say was who wrote Lord of the Rings? Oh, Tolkien. Tolkien. Ding ding ding. <laughs> Although Game of Thrones is a British institution. Yeah, literally. <laughs> oh, that was what I was thinking. Though, Honestly, though, the questions are absolutely ridiculous. Like, it just baffles me that that's what you need to do to become a British citizen. 
And I don't think you need to know about Henry VIII to be British because I don't know anything about Henry it's VIII. It's got nothing to do with our everyday life. It doesn't affect yeah. us in any way. But if someone was to ask me, like, where are you from? I'd instantly say London. Like, you know when you go abroad and people are like, yeah. where are you from? I'm like, London, London. Mm. I never say Britain. Um, no. So I think I identify more with being a Londoner than anywhere else mm. in England yeah. or being I think British. I, I think I identify as a Londoner first, but then I would say I'm British rather than saying I'm English, which is really weird. Like, yeah. mm. I, I but Scots would always say, I'm Scottish. Yeah, I'm Welsh, I'm yeah. Irish, yeah. They've got such, like, national pride. Yeah. Whereas we're a bit like... British. Yeah, but I don't know why we're like this as Londoners, though. I think it's a London thing to do. To I don't know, but it, it could be... We're very, like, I'm London, from London. It's because London has a ne- culture of its yeah, own. I'll never go outside London. What's that? What's outside London? Yeah. What for? <laughs> <laughs> Serious question. Yeah. What is there for me outside of London? <laughs> but, yeah. Is it, like, awkwardness, humour, apologising? We're very, like, queuing. Sorry, sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Queuing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, some people equate Britishness with being white. Mm. So, like, what do you think about that? We're all, have, we're all British. We all have British passports. Um, but then, Pratt, you're first gen. Yeah. Ruby, you're, heart, like, half your hair, half first gen. Um, <laughs> New term here. <laughs> but I'm second gen. Yeah. But because Ruby's white, does that make her more British than... Us? I yeah. think some people would equate it. As yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying because, like, I feel often I've like watched interviews, I like, listen to podcasts with people who aren't white, and they explain how in their lifetime they've had people say to them things like, "Oh, where are you from? Oh, yeah, I'm British. Oh, but where? Like, where are you from originally? Mm, yeah. And then I think they can get sometimes a bit. Yeah, it's odd because by that. I would probably like in that circumstance maybe I would get that kind of question thrown back mm, at yeah. me, but it's like. I am second generation. Um, my grandparents came over in the Windrush, so I can tell you where they from originally, but that question is really hard to answer. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's probably why we are so proud to say that we're like Londoners, we're from London, rather than automatically being like, we're British, like, as you said, the Scots do. Because um, London is so multicultural and yeah. diverse, and we're proud of that. And it's actually nice having a bit of something else a part of you rather than just being fully British, I think. Because mm. there know. isn't so much cultural influence. Like mm. being Caribbean, we have so much we have so much culture, and and it's probably the same for you guys as well. Like in terms of food. Um, like the way of life, family, yeah. you know, religion. There's so much that kind of influences your your perspective and, and who you are yeah. that I'm so happy that I've been able to... It's probably like where you identify. Like, do I, do I love my culture so much that if someone was to ask me, I'd be like, I'm Indian, mm. rather than saying I'm British. Like, how strongly do I, I identify with different parts of my personality and well sometimes i want to be difficult like you ask me <laughs> but where are you from here where are you where? from like but then obviously sometimes it's like i'm from the caribbean and, yeah. and it depends on the setting i mean sometimes yeah i just want to be annoying and be like london britain england yeah but sometimes it's like no i'm caribbean yeah i do think there's like a british essence or like there is something about being British like Mm. whenever I do something and like my mum doesn't quite understand it or she thinks it's like not part of her Indian culture she's like oh that's so British or like 
that's such a English thing to do. Mm. You know what I think it is? Like, I think it could be a lot of the time we are so conscious of not wanting to offend or saying anything <laughs> out yeah. of line, and that's why we can be so sorry, thank you, please. Yeah, it's a yeah, personality trait. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, even when like I go on holiday to India and like say someone brings you food or they get you something, you're like, oh, thank you so much, thank you. They're like, stop saying thank you. Like, you're saying it so much, and I'm like, oh, sorry, and they're like, stop saying sorry, and you're like, sorry for saying sorry. <laughs> they just want you to accept it and carry on. Yeah, yeah. but so maybe it's not like a British thing. Yeah, no, I agree as well, because I think, like, as well with the Israeli culture, they're so um, blunt and strict to the point. And I think people could see that as, like, really rude, but they're not being rude. That's just, like, how they are. And actually, I can't remember what I was listening to, but they said, like, actually saying sorry is different in different cultures. Mm. Like, in um, the Middle East, saying sorry is a sign of respect, so you only say sorry when you want to respect someone. In British culture, you say sorry for everything, basically. Excuse yeah. me, like, move. Yeah. <laughs> actually, when you're sorry, yeah. even when you're not sorry, yeah. you'll be fake. Oh, sorry, like, or, like, you're not even in the way. Someone else is in the way. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Get like, someone's attention. <laughs> sorry. sorry. <Yeah. laughs> but in, like, I can't think it was German or Dutch culture, they only say sorry when they absolutely, like, when they accept guilt or, like, when they have actually wronged someone. Mm. So, so you know it means something. Yeah, so you know it means something, but... Obviously, like, that can, tra- like, translate in different ways. Like, I don't know. You might get offended that they haven't apologised or something because they only say sorry when they know they're in the wrong. Mm. Right, okay. So, for example, there was, like, a Dutch cartoon um, and it was, like... Th- it was actually 12 cartoons and it was, like, offensive images of Mohammed. Mm. Um, and obviously, like, governments and people in the Middle East and it was actually worldwide, they were all, like, really, really deeply offended that they had disrespected... Um, the image of Muhammad in this way because firstly you're not actually supposed to draw Muhammad like yeah. he doesn't have a physical um like image because um, his greatness is too great to be captured on paper um and also like the things they were saying were like really rude like blasphemy yeah. um and so obviously the Middle Easterners or like the not even Middle East Muslim people around felt really like disrespected right. um but because in the Dutch culture they only apologize when they think they've done something wrong when it did come about and there was this outrage, they didn't apologise because they just thought, this is our, like, free speech, free media, like, this is how our... This is our humour, this is Danish humour, so we were only trying to be funny, we weren't actually trying to um, wrong you. And because the intention wasn't wrong, they didn't apologise. But in Middle Eastern culture, because you only apologise... You apologise when you've disrespected someone, they felt they were owed an apology. Mm -hmm. So they were like, well, you should say sorry to us and you should apologise because we feel disrespected. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were obviously not going to get that apology from someone that didn't intend to mm. offend them. So, yeah, I think there can be that, like, clash or tension. Clash, yeah. yeah. And as British people, we would totally be like, oh, my I'm God, I'm so sorry. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am, even if I'm not sorry, yeah. I am so sorry. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you found that offensive. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not like that, then there's, yeah, you're in the wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, how? Yeah. <laughs> mean cow, not yeah. apologizing. Reevaluate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> And that's all we've got time for on this episode. No! Thank you so much for listening to our first ever episode of the No Added Sugar Party. And as we mentioned, this is our Story to Inspire series. So in our next episode, we'll be joined with an amazing guest with amazing stories worth sharing. And some deep and some lighthearted. A real mix.
Yep, and we'd love to hear from you guys. So if there's something, anything that's inspired or impacted you in some way that you believe could help inspire others, please email us at noattitudepodcast at gmail.com. And we will read it out in the podcast when we ask our guests the same question. So please like, subscribe, share, give us feedback, whatever. And check out our Instagram, noattitudepodcast.